City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Here we are, we're through the acres and acres again, and um, it's City Limits, of course, it's the second Wednesday of the month. We're going to talk energy today, and uh, we're going to spend most of the day, in fact, talking energy, because we're going to have a lot to talk about with Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation. Zeb Peake's in the studio with me. Zeb. Hello. I'm Kevin Healy. Um, Today's program, we're going to have a very quick rave up front, but we're going to talk primarily, we're going to play a piece that was on Democracy Now! a couple of weeks ago, the show out of America, that's a wonderful program that comes on this this station a few times a week, but there was a segment, an interview with a woman in America who talks about the fact that the fossil fuel industry has taken over the, the debate around climate change effectively and running it. And we're seeing it, of course, that the next COP is going to be chaired by the head of some petroleum mob in the Middle East. So uh, it's uh, not a good sign. So we're going, to, we're going to play that and ask Dave to comment on it and have a general chat about climate change, but then move on, of course, today, because Dave is the anti-nuclear campaigner with, with Australian Conservation Foundation. And we'll talk to him also about issues to do with uranium, which have been in the news lately, particularly with our nuclear submarine and also the recent visit of Bill Gates who actually is an investor in nuclear industry and suggests that we should get into it. Um, Surprise, surprise. Whether Dave agrees we'll find out but uh, anyway um, so we're going to do that Um, but I thought just up front very quickly there's a mob called Mantle and they run James Squire Brewery and they run a number of restaurants and all sorts of things and they quite recently um they, well for years they they held on to an old old agreement that kept workers without any penalties and ripped them off for years and years but then finally the agreement ran out and but they got four people in their human relations department to sign an agreement that for years again now has bound workers with no penalty rates and no holiday pay etc they say you can voluntarily give them up but i think you don't get a job if you don't and recently they went to court and um, went to the, the Industrial Relations Court and um, the union took them there over this agreement. And the COIB and the, our, our Fair Work Commission thought it was so heinous that it maybe should be referred. Well, last week, in fact, one of their um, HR people um, was referred, a bloke called Latham, was referred to... Um, to the Australian Federal Police for possible criminal prosecution. So that's how serious is the the um, the, the the performance they've done. The the well, what we what they say may be criminal activities they've done. Um, and he uh, they point out that uh, in fact he clearly lied and misled them and all sorts of things in in his evidence and saying what they did and saying how they came to the agreement and he could be confused about a lot of things. But then the company came out and said, and this is the the incredible bit, um, 
A, a spokesperson for the company said they completely reject the findings. Well, they always do. <laughs> but they then said, Mr Latham is a man of the utmost integrity and has done nothing wrong. It is extraordinary that the union and others are attacking a worker for simply doing his job. Now, <laughs> simply doing his job was ripping up other workers big time. But anyway, they suddenly he becomes a worker doing his job when uh, it suits them. But this mantle mob... They run, um, as I say, the James Squire Brewery, and they have other other um, interests um, like uh, this. So I can't find them now, but they've got lots of interest in the in the um, in the hospitality industry. And anyway, this is one of the rare occasions, though, when for breaching industrial laws, they've actually referred it to the federal police for criminal prosecution. So that makes it pretty serious indeed. And speaking of law, just I noticed that Alan Tudge and other ministers last week uh, it, at the inquiry into uh, robo-debt um, didn't bother referring it. They never considered the fact it might be illegal because if it was illegal, surely the public servants wouldn't have let it go ahead and would have stopped it. So it was the public servants' fault and nothing to do with the government, apparently. Just thought I'd mention that. Um, but look, that's, uh, that's enough for our rave on this morning. We'll have more rave on next week, naturally. Uh, it's housing next week as well, so we'll have our usual suspects there as well. Uh, but um, anyway, look, we'll go to this, this recording, or this, this piece, this interview from Democracy Now! We'll get, um, in the meantime, we'll then also get Dave Sweeney on the phone and go full scale into climate change for today's program. Tens of thousands of climate activists have protested this week against the controversial expansion of a German coal mine. Police evicted climate activists who occupied the deserted town for months to prevent the area from being mined for lignite, a highly polluting type of coal. Police used tear gas, water cannons, batons to clear the encampment. Medics say at least 20 climate protesters were injured. Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg joined the protests and was detained Twice. The fact that all of you are here is a sign of hope. This is only a part of a much larger global climate movement, a movement for climate and social justice and racial justice. Litzerat, what, what happens in Litzerat doesn't stay in Litzerat. Germany, as one of the biggest polluters in the world, has an enormous responsibility. You are showing clearly today that the changes will not come from the people in power, from governments, from corporations, from the so-called leaders. No, the real leaders are here. It is the people who are sitting in tree houses and those who have been defending Lissolat, for example, for years now. The carbon is still in the ground. We are still here. Lissolat is still there. And as long as the carbon is in the ground, this struggle is not over. This comes as the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has condemned fossil fuel executives for deliberately misleading the public about the threat posed by their products. After a new study found Exxon was aware of the link between fossil fuel emissions and global heating as early as the 70s and even before, but spent decades refuting and obscuring the science in order to make maximum profits. He warned the Paris Climate Agreement's goal of limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Celsius is, quote, nearly going up in smoke. And without further action, the planet's headed toward a 2.8 degrees Celsius increase. Well, now we turn to a dramatic scene in December. 
when the scientist and climate activist Rose Abramoff joined a fellow NASA scientist, Peter Kalmus, to disrupt a meeting of the world's biggest meeting of scientists who study Earth and space, the American Geophysical Union, the nonviolent protest was meant as a call to action to address the climate crisis. Rosa Abramoff and Kalmus went up on the stage and unfurled a banner that read, Out of the Lab and Into the Streets. Science director at the Nurture Nature Center. Our science is showing that the planet is dying. It's terrifying. Everything is at risk. Well, yeah. As scientists, we have tremendous efforts, but we need to use it to wake This was not Rose Abramoff's first protest. She'd previously chained herself to a White House gate and to a fence at Charlotte Douglas International Airport as part of a series of global protests coordinated by a group called Scientist Rebellion to raise awareness of how luxury air travel contributes to the climate crisis. Until earlier this month, Rose Abramoff worked as an earth scientist at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. But in a New York Times opinion piece this month, she announced I'm a scientist who spoke up about climate change. My employer fired me. Her employer is the U.S. government. Rose Abramoff joins us now from Knoxville, Tennessee. Welcome to Democracy Now! Dr. Abramoff, it's great to have you with us. Um, can you talk about the action you engaged in and your response to your firing? Sure, Amy. Thank you. Um, so, like you said, I was attending the largest annual gathering of Earth scientists. This was in December of last year in Chicago, where I presented work on the effect of climate and land use change on carbon cycling. And Peter, the uh, my friend who was holding the banner and NASA climate scientist, was presenting on extreme humid heat in urban areas. So these are very relevant studies. After we were finished, with our professional obligations, we unfurled this banner at the plenary and made our plea um, to action. We were very quickly escorted off the stage um, by organizers of the meeting. We were expelled from the conference. And most troubling to me is that our work was removed from the conference program, which we had presented earlier that week, as if it had never been presented. Um, and then, of course, as you describe a few weeks later, I was fired by my employer, they, and citing this incident. And how exactly did they explain that? What was what were you guilty of in participating in this action? Yeah, there were two explanations um, that were given to me on the very short piece of paper that was my termination letter. One was that I violated the business code of conduct, which contains quite a lot of things, and they didn't specify what exactly I violated, but there's language about maintaining the, the credibility and the reputation of the laboratory. Um, there's language about not misusing government funds, which was also separately cited as the second reason in the letter. Because I was um, doing this, I was, I was unfurling this banner on a work trip. And talk about the group Scientist Rebellion. What kinds of actions do they engage in? 
Sure. So Scientist Rebellion is an international group of scientists who are concerned about climate change and believe that the mandate of scientists, especially Earth scientists, really needs to expand. Um, so we typically engage in acts of nonviolent civil disobedience in order to um, demonstrate to people the urgency and the severity of the climate crisis. So part of our work is speaking up so that people understand the level of risk we're in, how much time we have left, what the carbon budget is like. And, and another part of it is advocating for what we think are obvious policy solutions, um, obvious policy implications of our research, things like ending fossil fuel extraction and subsidies, canceling global south debt so that they can facilitate a green transition, um, banning luxury travel such as private jets and yachts, and taxing, adding progressive taxes on frequent flying. Um, and so those are just an example, examples of some of the campaigns that we've participated in, um, advocating for loss and damage, for example, um, at uh, the conference of parties that occurred in Egypt. So, Dr. Rose Abramoff, why did you risk your job and did you realize you were doing that? Talk about your philosophy around being an Earth scientist, uh, working at a federal lab, and engaging in climate activism. Some might say that that should be your responsibility as a Earth scientist. Right. I mean, I think recent events have really brought up a lot of these fundamental questions about what the mandate of Earth scientists, especially those of us who study climate change, are. Um, you know, most scientists of every flavor were originally trained by our institutions to be carefully policy neutral in all of our communications, both with each other, with our institutions, and with the press. Um, and and leave any political commentary, however obvious it may be, to basically everyone else. Um, and I find that it's really, that seems interesting to me that we sort of allow the fossil fuel industry, economists, politicians, celebrities, random people on the internet, you know, the, the youth which are leading the climate movement, everyone has a stake um, and a right to comment on these climate policies, except, it seems, those of us who have subject matter expertise in the area. Um, that seems like an odd policy to me, and I take issue with it. And uh, Dr. Abramov, could you also talk about some of your concerns now about uh, where the climate debate is going? A number of people have uh, criticized the decision by the United Arab Emirates, which is uh, hosting uh, the next round of U.N. climate talks. Uh, they have appointed uh, the CEO of one of the world's biggest oil companies to preside over the talks. Your response? Right. I think this is just another example of the way in which the fossil fuel industry has essentially captured every aspect of our politics, um, you know, that they're heading this, what is the climate, it's supposed to be the climate mitigation conference. Um, and it's also troubling that there's so much, you know, either tacit or explicit support from our leadership. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of friendly rhetoric from the fossil fuel industry that they believe in the green transition and that they're planning to be carbon neutral by 2050. But I'm an earth scientist and I'd rather look at the numbers. And so let's take one example. The Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, which is the company which Sultan Al Jaber heads, is still planning to increase their production of crude oil from 4 million barrels per day to 5 million barrels per day while at the same time the UAE maintains that they're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. I don't see how those two things are going to happen at the same time. Um, and, and, and everything else that I've seen more generally in terms of plans for production and expansion from the fossil fuel industry 
across the world leads me to believe that this friendly rhetoric, this we're going to transition is frank. And I can't think of a better way to say this, but it's just total BS. Um, you know, the study that you referenced last week, which was published in the journal Science, confirms using a yet another line of evidence that ExxonMobil knew about climate change very accurately since at least the 70s and likely earlier than that. And, and you know, we, we know about the misinformation campaigns that they've been leading and obscuring, essentially bringing to a halt any significant policy action um, since since those decades. And so if, as a society, we're going to be successful in making a near complete transition away from fossil fuels, we really have to remove the power and, importantly, also the funding of the fossil fuel industry, um, their power, legitimacy, and funding. I think that's the only way that we're going to dismantle it, essentially, successfully. Dr. Abramoff, we are speaking at a time when this report has come out, Greenland is the hottest it's been in a thousand years. Uh, these massive protests in Germany, where among many others, um, Greta Thunberg, the famous Swedish climate activist, um, has been detained twice. And she said climate protection is not a crime. Um, we're talking about the head of the oil company being named the head of the U.N. COP for next year in UAE and Biden's climate envoy. Um, former senator John Kerry, uh, hailing him as a great leader of the COP, endorsing that decision. And under the Biden administration, you have been fired. Can you appeal, since you work at a federal lab, for them to rehire you? What message do you have for the Biden administration? Um, I'm not sure that I can appeal, mostly because I work in the state of Tennessee, which doesn't have very many employment rights. So um, UT Battelle, which is the uh, kind of subcontract defense contractor, which 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 manages Oak Ridge National Laboratory, um, employs people at will, um, if, if, which which essentially means they can I can be fired for any reason. I don't necessarily they didn't need to have given me a reason. Um, but you know, I do have appeals to make. So you know, my very first action when I chained myself to the White House gate was an appeal to the president to declare a climate emergency. You know, there has been some passage of policies since then, but nowhere near what we need um, in order to maintain the habitability of our planet um, to stay below the safer level of warming 1.5 degrees Celsius, which we expect to breach at least temporarily this decade. Rose, we just um, have 10 seconds. What are your plans now? I'm planning to continue with both research and activism, um, and I hope to mobilize many more scientists and uh, everyone else to the cause. Maybe Please. you can be the next climate envoy of the United States. Dr. Rose Abramoff, Earth scientist, recently fired from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory after urging other scientists to take action on climate change. We'll link to her New York Times op-ed. I'm a scientist who spoke up about climate change. My employer fired me. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Okay, back on air on that interview, uh, I think pretty important, actually. One thing, important thing we forgot to do, though, we did pour it and enjoyed it while during the listening to that, but we forgot to actually pour the tea before the break, which means people won't even know they're on city limits. I'll just pour a little bit so you can get... There we are. That makes people realise what we're up to. <laughs> and on the line, we have Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation, as we've said earlier in the program, and anti, the anti-nuclear campaigner there. Dave, we asked you to listen to that um, and comment on it. Um, it is pretty serious stuff, isn't it, that the, the industry is taking over the, the debate? 
Hello, Kevin, and good morning, Deb, and welcome to 23. Um, yes. yes, it is very serious, but, like, it's not sort of... I don't think it would be for you or for a lot of CR listeners that this is striking news, that, you know, the corporations that profit most from the destruction of the world are shaping the narrative about how the world works. Um, it is it is deeply disturbing. It is increasingly um, creepy, um, pervasive, and increasingly also obvious, actually, um, uh, that, you know, like the, the shameless appointing of a senior fossil fuel exec to a climate mitigation conference is, um, is speaks volumes. And it is a real concern. There's a disproportionate impact in shaping policy, in shaping the allocation of decision-making and the allocation of funding um, to the fossil fuel sector, the nuclear sector, the arms uh, sector, like... A small group of um, basically, you know, as was said in the 50s, the military-industrial complex um, exert vast power, um, disproportionate power, and it's really adverse. Yeah, well, there was a headline, just a few headlines recently um, in the in the in the papers. Just as an example, last eight years are the warmest on record. That came out of the European Union, a study they did, but then. In the same period, we have headlines like Let Market Work to Unlock More Gas Industry Urges. And edit, Financial Review editorial headline, Labor Must Heed the ACCC Report and Back Gas. Queensland anger as eastern states press to open gas fields. Queensland's Dalrymple Bay bullish on coal exports. Investment in oil gas needed until 2050, says BP. And there was another headline where a, a mob, an investment mob, urged people to invest in coal because the prices are going to go up. So um, it's still seen as uh, as profit over uh, any other consideration, obviously. Absolutely, Kevin. There's this real disjuncture between what is increasingly seen as the irrefutable scientific fact um, versus um, like particular sector interests and returns. Um, and you know we're seeing that. Very, very clearly. We, it's interesting too. ACF has a democracy project, like tracking the health of democracy, because one of the um, one of the principles of, of um, the organisation's organising is that you know a, a, a healthy democracy um, that's inclusive, that's transparent, that has mechanisms for engaging people, is more conducive to you know a healthy environment than a close, like a, a really closed shop that's driven just in the most functional sort of way. So there was an assessment done by some of that crew, some of the colleagues on dollars in uh, electoral dollars and, and political donations um, because the Electoral Commission released data earlier this month about that. And this is just one small example of the bigger picture that the um, Democracy Now! piece um, uh, the Rose Abrahamoff uh, concerns and, and what you and Zeb said earlier in the show, Kevin, it's like the dark money in Australian politics, as they call it, is on the rise. There's over $100 million in the most recent last year federal election context. Over $100 million of major political party declarations had no identifiable source. Mm. You know, and, and if you look at some of the companies, like fossil fuel sources kicked in $2.5 million uh, in political donations. The Dani, Woodside, Santos, uh, Tambran Minerals, the uh, Tambran Resources, the mob doing the Beedaloo Basin proposal, the Minerals Council, APIA, the 
Petroleum Exploration Association. Poor, poor Adani might want his money back now, though. Might now, yeah. But yeah. they've all they've all kicked in for both, either or both major parties. Um, and you know, there 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 is a real need for lots of different things. But one of them here is like um, significant reform of around political donations, about caps, about thresholds for revelation and disclosure about increased transparency because you know you do uh, you know there's that saying if you get what you pay for and the fossil fuel industry and dirty energy industries are paying heavily at the moment yeah yeah um another thing that came up for me in the interview that i found interesting is this position that earth scientists are in where um they are sort of you know like no to basically the most in-depth um like what consequences climate change is going to have on our planet and yet they are prevented from speaking out politically um and i wanted to know your thoughts on that and also um i'm supposing nuclear physicists are kind of in the same position with whatever their like opinions are on um how their knowledge should be used yeah that's a really good observation and that's one that i've picked up to listening to the Democracy Now! piece. There's, there's some real themes there, and those themes are very also evident in the Australian domestic politics, like there's systematic denial of a problem, there's an overt industry policy influence, um, there is um, this push of muddying the waters, of saying that this is a debate, we need a debate, we need a conversation, we need a discussion, as opposed to we need to be informed by the best possible scientific evidence. Um, and so you find one person who says, I don't believe that the climate's changed or I, I believe that actually radiation's healthy for you or I believe nuclear weapons have um, maintained a strategic balance and hence the peace. Find one person who will say with some degree of authority or some degree of, uh, you know, um, certification uh, a comment and then demand that you have equal time. Um, and all those sort of tactics and techniques that we've seen in tobacco, that we've seen in big pharma, that we've seen in so many... Asbestos is a good example. Asbestos is a great example. Um, And it's um, like a tragic example, but a really crystal clear one. And hopefully also a good one in what we did there too, Kevin, because we said, like, the stuff works, but it works at high cost to people and planet, Mm. and we're going to find better alternatives. I read a piece from a a Swedish study that was done back in the early 1900s that's even then said asbestos killed people, and yet right up until, what, the 60s or 70s, they just kept trying to deny it. Yeah, and then when they couldn't deny it anymore, they just kept trying to delay it so that people passed away before they got their day in court. Um, It's a profound disgrace. The good news story is we're not digging it here anymore, we're not using it here anymore, and that's what we need to do with our dirty energy. We need to not dig or use here or abroad. So there is another part of the asbestos lesson. But, Seb, just following back to your question about one of the worst forms of editing is self-editing. Um, as we all know, and um, I reckon it's better to be pushed and then reprimanded than cut cut your own voice um, by trying to, you know, be um, acceptable. Um, the the amount of people in expert positions in science and technical fields who hold their tongue because they don't think it's their place or because they've been brought up to be a scientist and anything that can't be, you know, like in the most clinical, detached, join the dots in a white coat um, way is is not their domain. That's above my pay grade. It's not my ballywick. It's not my domain. That's not my area of expertise. I don't do politics. 
you know, you can run it together into a, a, a chant of, of reasons, excuses, varying degrees of plausibility, but people do self-edit it. Mm-hmm. There is also a culture of um, don't get involved. Politics is dirty, messy, and we're above that. We're above the fray of this sort of stuff, and we just say what we know, and then that will land or not. There's a bit of this um, sort of ab- ab- above above the scrap um, culture. There is also the very real thing of people, like, get smashed. They lose their careers. They lose their funding. Like, stuff gets um, shut down. Options get shut down for them. They don't get promoted. They don't get that, you know, exchange overseas, that six-month symposium, blah, blah, blah. And if you want to kill your career, speak about... Um, things that are happening in your sector that are killing the planet. So a lot of people, through functional reasons, sort of also edit. Um, and then we look at the the severity of when there is, like, a, a person comes out strongly, unless they've got political cover or some form of cultural cover. Like, you know, industry goes after people very hard, like we've seen with whistleblowers and with um, all sorts of, of uh, quite hardcore, punitive, legalistic... Um, punishments and approaches and sanctions to people who are attempting to, you know, um, sound the alarm and call for some action. Mm-hmm. That interview did cover a fair bit of ground, and one area it did cover also was greenwashing, Dave. Um, and in recent, the last couple of months, a couple of issues of a thing called the National Indigenous Times have fallen out of the Murdoch media, which means they're probably producing it. But there was a, a story in, in the last one, uh, the opening paragraph, Emeritus Professor Colleen Hayward, AM, a respected Indigenous leader in Western Australia, was recently appointed to the Board of Mineral Resources. In an exclusive interview, she spoke about her excitement at the opportunity to bring her, etc., etc., but in the same edition, there were ads, applications for Indigenous cadetships and scholarships now open. Rio Tinto uh, Indigenous Leadership, says the ad. Native Reforestation Project. Woodside Sustainability, a part of a better future. Um, Woodside Energy is working with environmental enterprises, etc., and traditional owners. And Santos, we are listening gas export pipeline cultural heritage assessment and they really care now this is the same santos that on the same project because this is the barossa gas development project the same project in fact went to court to fight the tiwi islanders having any say in the whole thing um so it appears there's a fair bit of greenwashing going on yeah there is a there's a, there's a fundamental um tension that existed um since you know day dot of conflict and, you know, confrontation and invasion. Um, it continues now um, between the resource sector in Australia and the First Nations peoples. Um, there is... It's, it's really complicated in the sense of um, there is a lot of funding, like you identified, Kevin, that flows into art, sports, community funding, environmental initiatives um, in the Aboriginal realm, and, um, and that funding comes directly um, from mining companies. And the big miners um, spend heavily on that. Um, For some, there's a a real personal passion and a real commitment to see things change and to get the result, whatever it is. Um, For others, it's um, low-hanging fruit to um, um, assure um, social licence and and guarantee continued unfettered access. Um, Whatever it is, 
whatever the motivation, it's very real. And so that means that a lot of really important, really worthy um, and often, you know, Aboriginal control from the ground up um, initiative from a footy club to a medical centre um, are dependent on mining money. So that brings dependency, brings difficulty and complexity. And there is all that sort of uh, stuff about, you know, for a lot of people in, in remote Australia in particular, like you can lobby the government for 16 years for an airstrip or for an upgrade to a clinic or whatever. Um, and then if a mining company decides that that's in their interest, they'll do it in, in, in three months. Um, and so there's that real tension between, you know, um, a, a fundamental principle of um, concern, protection of country, care and connection to country, etc., and then the actual economics of stuff getting done and stuff getting delivered. Um, and, yeah, you know, part of that is, like, shameless greenwashing. Part of that reflects a profoundly um, disproportionate, unfair, dysfunctional structural imbalance in, in power. Part of it reflects the indifference of state and federal governments being that the, the indifference to commit to like significant targeted funding, long-term infrastructure funding, etc. So in the absence of that degree of reliability for funding to realise your citizenship entitlements, health, education, other things, mobility, communications, um, then, you know, a mining company often fills the gap. Um, and it's really hard to see, but it's also equally hard to, to condemn or criticise, you know, in the real-world impact of how do, you, how do you get things to happen. So the, I think that... The, the way isn't to expect Aboriginal people to not engage with mining companies. I think more is the way is to expect there to be other options apart from mining as a way to advance things. And the second then point is that if mining companies are involved, those arrangements uh, need to be as clear and transparent and spelled out as possible so that, you know, there's some degree of certainty on the part of the community that's in receipt of that. Uh, it was interesting, after the Ducan Caves disaster, uh, it appeared to me the Western Australian government amended the Act so that it went back to where it was in the first place. Yeah, Ducan was um, just such a such a rude shock, but there's still so much that needs to be done. Like The, the federal recommendations, Warren Ench chaired a, a committee looking at that and Pat Dodson and others, and that made some really powerful recommendations and they need to be... Like, they need to be adopted. There's, there's so many times, Kevin, and, you know, you and Zeb and listeners will know, there's so many times that really quite thoughtful work goes into looking at a situation. Like, for example, Black Death in Custody, you know? Mm. That Royal Commission, those recommendations just need to be implemented. They need to be implemented speedily and in full, and that will address some stuff. We can't keep... We're turning into a little bit, with some of these issues, we're turning a little bit akin to the American model of thoughts and prayers once there's a shooting incident and we do nothing about gun reform. We need to do some reforms. We need to reform our political system. We need to reform and encourage and increase and require increased transparency, increased equity in, in um, like mining and other agreements. Um, and that's really essential to have, to, you know, have a healthy democracy in this country, have some ability to address what's a profound power imbalance. Yeah, and I, I suppose it's quite worrying in the sense that what we don't want to happen is that um, like a company like Rio Tinto kind of it's it's almost worse than greenwashing if they um, put in some mechanisms or um, employ First Nations people and um, that 
helps them to, uh, that gives them a license to do further damage that before might have been easier to denounce, if that makes sense? It does, it does make sense, yeah. And it, it, is, um, it is difficult because then you balance against that um, the, the legitimate economic aspirations of Aboriginal people, yeah. First Nations people. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's where, the, that's where the alternatives and the options um, come in in that one, Zeb. And that's a really, there's some really interesting work being done. Environment groups, um, particularly um, natural resource management groups, there's really interesting work being done around tourism, regional arts, but particularly large-scale um, landscape uh, management, carbon capture and storage and abatement, all sorts of things like that, that are trying to not only find ways to keep people on country, because that's where like most people say they want to stay on country, um, so finding ways where it can keep people engaged and, and active, but also with an economic um, capacity there. So you're not just stuck on country, you've got a bit of mobility too. Um, and the other one there is that those things need to be facilitated um, so that it's not just seen as uh, either pastoral, which is shrinking in its in its footprint in or uh, in its uh, activity levels in some ways, or mining, which is expanding. So it's not just cows or trucks, yellow trucks or, or brown cows that are seen as the option for economic activity in remote and regional Australia. So there's a whole range of other activities but also tap into a whole range of other cohorts of the community, like women in the art centre and all that sort of stuff. And that's what some really good thinking groups like, you know, Country Needs People and others are putting real thinking into how can we grow those sort of alternatives that build some community capacity that look after country and that provide some economic pathways shy of ripping and shipping your country up. Yeah, and I noticed also, the other day I heard an item that um, reminded me that when slavery was abolished, slave owners received government compensation, lots of money for their their unfortunate financial losses. And we're doing the same thing, aren't we, with the government's current caps and targets, that we're actually putting aside millions to compensate the polluters for not polluting. I find that amazing. Yeah, it's it's really quite perverse. It's quite a perverse reward, that. You know, like um, money to the large companies that have benefited from extraction that has been highly damaging, highly impactful, highly adverse, um, and money, sorry, money to not make as much this year as last year. I agree. I think that, you know, we really need to. And one thing that came out strongly in that Democracy Now! piece, I thought it was a great line, where um, Rose Abrahamoff said um, that what she was looking to do was to remove the power, the legitimacy and the funding of the fossil sector. Mm. And um, and I think, you know, we've spoken before, for example, about um, ICANN and nuclear weapons stuff and, and other issues and nuclear front, and we are also working to remove that power, legitimacy and the economic leverage that those sectors enjoy. You know, they've got to be deeply challenge, Kevin, because you're absolutely right. That money should be used for punters who are doing it pretty hard and that's likely to get tougher, but particularly to accelerate the transition transition away from dirty energy into renewables, particularly in those areas that are most affected. It should be the communities that are affected that are in receipt of that money, not companies like Rio. Yep. 
And well, let's move on to that because we're talking about where money is being wasted in this society. We'd argue that the, all the, the trillions we're now spending on defence, uh, and that brings us on to nuclear, of course, now, Dave. Um, but before we go on to that specifically, or well, no, we are going to be specific, but not on to the, the AUKUS thing yet. But I mentioned last week, because you gave me the information why that capsule was there in the first place, which actually got found in the end. But can you explain that capsule that Rio Tinto lost and why the hell it was there? Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting story. So, like radiation sources, and particularly you know um, uh, cesium and cobalt, are used in different sort of measuring and calibration devices, and they're either used to measure radiation itself. Um, so, like to check out background levels of radiation, because mining operations often have associated radioactive, lower-level radioactive exposures, so there's a, a tracking and monitoring role. The other um, reason they're used on mine sites and a lot of industrial, some industrial sites, Kevin, is that they're used to, um, to, do, to effectively give a real-time X-ray of pipes and material flow and material density and movement through large pipes. So you can imagine you've got a large mine site or a large um, industrial plant or whatever facility and there's lots of material moving around under pressure through pipes that are you know obviously um, not transparent you can't see it but you want to track how things are moving if there's blockages is the flow rate the slurry rate at the right sort of um, consolidation or density and so these enable you to effectively take a a, a real life real time x-ray through uh, a pipe non-destructive testing um, so those are the two principal uses at a mine site. This one, you know, was being repatriated back down to the third-party company, who Rio still haven't named who that was, in Perth that managed the radiation monitoring stuff. Um, the, the mine where it came from was um, um, a, a reasonably new iron ore mine, which Rio are quite proud of and say is one of their most technically advanced mines. Um, so it still shows that even in that sort of um, context of, uh, you know, one of the world's largest mining companies, pretty good internal procedures at one of their most uh, technically sophisticated mines in a country with a reasonable sort of degree, not nowhere near enough, but a reasonable degree of oversight of, of mining operations. Um, even then, there's still... Uh, uh, an accident, an error, a set of circumstances that result in a loss um, that no one, you know, from the company or any of the regulators would have predicted or would have even seen as credible. We're very fortunate it wasn't found, particularly it would have been, I'm sure, Rio's nightmare that would be found by a bunch of Aboriginal kids and end up in their community being passed around, something like that. Those sort of stories have, have appeared in other parts of the world. And I'm sure that would have caused them a lot of grief. They would have been wrapped to find that thing. But it is an indication of, you know, severity. That thing in itself is like a gamma emitter, so it puts out a serious radiation pulse. It could make a very crook or kill you, depending on length of exposure. But we dodged a bullet there, but it just shows that this sector is... Um, it's, it's impossible to guard against the multiplicity of risk factors and things that go wrong in any sector. You can do your best and you can narrow the odds, but you can't make that um, not a threat or not a risk. And in the nuclear sector, when things go wrong, there's an extra level of complexity, danger and, in fact, longevity. 
And in fact, of course, of the nuclear sector, they keep they're talking about nuclear reactors all the time now. And we had um, Bill Gates here recently. And in fact, um, just before Christmas, late in the year, the Herald Sun gave um, its its marks uh, as a school ma- schoolmaster marks to the sundry ministers, and the lowest rating was the minister um, Bowen, the minister for for these areas. And it says, notes tis tis tis. Perhaps the most disappointing pupil in the class, Bowen will need to um, to head back to remedial maths, physics, and. Uh, economics classes if he keeps repeating some of the things he says about emissions, renewables and nuclear power. Would be advised to spend summer break reading up on small nuclear reactors, etc., as if these things are absolutely essential and there's never any mention in these, these days about the nuclear waste at all. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite extraordinary. Like this, uh, so we're back for Federal Parliament this week um, and on day one, apart from other things that happened on day one, there was... Um, uh, you know, legislation to repeal nuclear prohibitions in Australia, um, introduced by David Gillespie, a Liberal from up around Coffs Harbour Way, um, and, you know, debated, and it's all part of a continuing push. There's a Senate inquiry that Matt Canavan, that, you know, with his profound concern about the climate... One of the deep um, minds of Parliament, yeah. Yeah. The, um, so Canavan got that up at the tail end of last year, and that's due to report in the end of March, um, looking at domestic nuclear power in Australia and calling, it will be calling for the removal of existing federal prohibitions. So we've, you know, got, like, uh, the majority of the uh, Australian environment groups, Greenpeace and ACF and Friends of the Earth and all the con councils and state environment groups um, have put in a, a detailed and combined submission saying, you know, can we please stop this nonsense and get on with the real business, which was action on climate by embracing renewables. But it's still going on and on and on. And they're still walking this weird dance um, where they say we're not talking, we're talking all the problems, Fukushima, waste, nuclear weapons, all that stuff is associated with the old reactors. We're talking about the new reactors. They're the ones we want. We want small modular reactors. The trouble they've got is that no one has small modular reactors. They've been around, the technology's been around for 60 years. It hasn't been refined, commercialised, deployed. It's not generating commercial electricity anywhere in the world today. And people are saying, even pro-nuclear people, it would be hundreds of billions in public subsidy and decades before it did. Now, we don't have the money. We, above all, don't have the time. And we already do know that we have the answers with the most efficient and fastest growing energy source, which is the suite mm. of renewables. So again and again, we're hitting this point, Kevin, in this discussion, this sort of the energy positioning where, you know, there's a bunch in the coalition who for either mischievous reasons, like they like a bit of a political stouch, or through reasons of like they want to effectively um, uh, like delay and confuse um, the the necessary movement to the fast embrace of renewables, and they want to confuse the issue and muddy the waters and say, oh, nuclear's just around the corner, we don't need to do anything. It's a business-as-almost-usual sort of and approach. And that, that line, all options should be on the table, That they keep using that line. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and what we actually need to do is have a fair income. The, the one good thing, and I'm trying to look glass half full of things, but the one good thing of this whole nuclear debate is that more and more people, including the Minerals Council of Australia, 
are actually putting themselves in a position where they're saying that we can't keep going business as usual with, with fossil fuels. They're actually saying we need to drop carbon. So Matt Canavan, he mightn't believe it, um, he might want to do it, but in his positioning around nuclear, part of the thing is, given climate considerations, we need to explore, we need to blah, blah, blah. So they're all saying we need to change the way we generate and use electricity. So that's good news. The bad news is that the way that they're uh, proposing, the solution they're proposing is A, missing in action, and B, it would just mean... It wouldn't be, oh, this is an interesting consideration. It would mean a delay on taking action on renewables. Um, so there is a positive here, and hopefully we can move on to, um, you know, onto a more productive sort of policy area. Federal Labor government, like they, they might say, Chris Bowen's been really ordinary on this. I think Bowen's been good and clear. Albanese has been good and clear. The Greens have been good and clear. Um, and the Teal have also been really clear that we need to do effective climate action not to just spend more time on delay and distraction. So I'm, I'm confident, not complacent, but confident that there's enough sound thinking that this won't, you know, get up and unzip in the most dramatic and negative way. But it, that is going to still take work and effort. And it is also this sort of chatter delays action towards really meaningful efforts to reduce climate impacts. Yeah, it's interesting also your point about the fact that they, uh, to go nuclear, they've got to admit there is climate change. And the same thing happened recently with uh, with Ian McFarlane, the former resource minister in the Liberal government, who um, is currently now, he now, of course, is a spokesperson for the industry. But in arguing for nuclear power, he then, because they tell us that gas, of course, is the way to go. Gas um, is the transition. But then he says, you can run on gas for longer, but that means you are simply substituting gas for coal. If you're going to try to get to zero emissions eventually, then nuclear is obviously part of the answer, he says. Mm. So he's actually now admitting that gas mightn't be all that good. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. And, you know... Um because Ian McFarlane, like you say, head of the Queensland Resource Council, significant player in, in what's quite negative energy positioning. Um, you know, Matt Canavan, Black Coal Matters uh, Canavan, um, all having to do this dance now where they're having to say, oh, nuclear, nuclear, by saying we can't, you know, climate. Now, they wouldn't say we can't keep burning coal, but that is effectively what they're saying. If they're saying we need to, um, we need to change... Uh, our energy source. And that is hopefully where this will come to. I, I would like to see this year a couple of things happen on this, Kevin. I'd like to see people say, listen, are you talking about the reactors that actually exist? Do you want to build the reactors that they have in Japan, the US and France today in Australia? And they will all say no because they're all writing, you know, in fine print, not the reactors that exist, just the new ones. Um, and then their case becomes... We reckon Australia's energy future is to hook itself primarily or in some cases solely to a technology that is not generating one watt of electricity in the commercial world, anywhere in the commercial world today. So I think most Australians want, you know, a bit more assurance and a bit more certainty about hot showers and cold beers than that. And they tell us that having nuclear subs mean we should therefore have a nuclear industry. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a book in 2020. There was a symposium at University of New South Wales and the proceedings of the symposium came were produced in a book called Nuclear Power in Australia, 
gash, starting with submarines. So there has been a quite long-running agenda to to use submarines as the literally under the water, under the you know waterline entry point for uh, increased pressure to say we need. Uh, you know, uh, to enhance and grow our nuclear capabilities in this country. So we're absolutely seeing that now. We'll see more of that next month, Kevin, when um, when it's widely expected that Prime Minister Albanese will go to Washington to uh, make some significant announcement about the status of AUKUS and the nuclear subs plan. Um, you know, and it is a real concern that we are, in the most non-transparent way, drifting towards making very significant economic, military and technological decisions, which are really... um, which really don't sort of stack up and, you know, even sitting back, they're not in the longer-term national interest and they're of significance, of such significance, that they should really be, and particularly under a Federal Labor Administration, they should be the topic of significant open review and consideration, not not assurances from the Department of Defence. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but Miles almost makes Peter Dutton look like a Quaker. Well, might be a bit of an exaggeration, but, yeah, look, Richard Miles as Defence Minister has really, you know, I think been quite seduced by, uh, you know, the sense of, you know, the importance of Australia to the US relationship and, and the whole... Washington pressure thing, um, and seems very, very committed to just going further and further down that way. Now, there's two. There's probably two key things in this for Australia in the next 12 months, I'd say, and one is the, the decision on next steps on the nuclear-powered submarines, um, and the second is um, we've spoken of to the de- proposed deployment of USB-52 bombers to Tyndall Air Base in Catherine mm-hmm. in the NT. Um, both of those things are like significant escalations of Australian military posturing and significant um, interlacing of Australian uh, operational capacity and decision-making and effectively making it subservient to American decision-making. Um, so that's a real concern, and we're calling on federal labour, like we being... Um, you know, the ICANN crew, but also the wider peace movement, wider many in the environment movement, calling on federal labour to, should those two um, things go ahead, nuclear-powered sub, um, we'd prefer they didn't, but should it go ahead, it should be absolutely made clear that they will never host nuclear weapons, and should the B-52 deployment go ahead, um, 50%, around 50% of the US B-52 fleet um, Kevin, following the strategic arms reduction talks, commitments made there, about 50% of the US B-52 fleet is not nuclear weapons capable. So if that deployment was to go ahead, it should only be with those um, those planes. Mm. And we should sign and ratify the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons because that's the best signal to say, even if we are having an even closer embrace and dance with the US, we're not a nuclear weapons state and we won't tolerate being a base for nuclear weapons either. That would be a really important uh, temperature test, you know, for, for the region and for our relationship with China and beyond. Yeah, and of course, well, there may, be, may well be a, a problem in, in the future because DeSantis, who may well become Republican president, who's currently governor of Florida, 
has come out and said if we if we build suburbs for Australia, they should be built in Florida, not Australia. So uh, <laughs> there's a few clashes likely to take place. Oh, there's clashes everywhere, and the you know the unions involved in um, shipbuilding have been arcing up their efforts and saying that we should build a sort of um, enhanced columns, a diesel electric sub rather than uh, nuclear subs, and that should do the job, and it should be built here using existing infrastructure, etc. So there's there's a long there's a long way to go, and there's all sorts of strange characters and players in this orchestra deal. Um, We're so almost out of time, but it is disappointing, that item about the union. So they're actually saying that should be an interim thing before we, we, we train our own workers to build nuclear subs, but they actually, you know, they're not opposing the bloody nuclear subs thing, unfortunately. And that is unfortunate, but at the same time, a delay, like the way that, that as you're aware too, the way that technology is moving in the maritime thing, particularly autonomous, destroy drones in, in the seas. Um, if you delay making that sort of commitment and building these vessels, you wouldn't build these vessels into the future. It'll be a war crime to put humans in a tin to be cut apart by Star Wars spider probes. That's what'll be happening in 20 years and it'd be mad. Mm. All right, we're coming to the end of the program, but do you want to remind listeners uh, how they can join the anti-nuclear um, campaign and if there's any particular events coming up? Yes, yeah, absolutely, Zeb, and thank you. And there, it will be a busy year this year. There'll be a lot. There'll be a lot of stuff in the Pacific too, with Japan looking to dump Fukushima wastewater, which is an increasing concern. Mm. Um, and a big fight um, at Kimber over radioactive waste in Australia. And what does that mean? What right do Aboriginal people have to say no? So, look, a couple of ways I reckon just for people to check out Friends of the Earth and ACF um, websites. So. FO.org and acf.org.au um, and check that out and have a graze around and see what people think. But there's lots to be done. Friends of the Earth Mob in um, Smith Street, uh, doors are very open, I think, fortnightly meeting and it's a really um, sort of safe and good space to engage initially in some of these questions. But there's heaps of information around, lots of groups, including ACF and FO, doing good work. And I just checked that out. And obviously Radioactive Show on a Saturday morning on... 855 AM. Indeed. Although at least with Kimber, Dave, we know nothing could fall off a truck and cause an accident. Um, that's that's the, very good comfort. Thanks. <laughs> that's right. Dave, look, thanks for your time. We're doubt, we're doubtless going to talk throughout the year, but look, thanks for your time this morning. You've given us so much of it. Thanks a lot. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, Cheers, thank you See very you much. Dave Sweeney, the Australian Conservation Foundation Housing. Next week, got to go. Joe will be in the next studio screaming and yelling, saying, get off the air, and uh, we'll get off the air. Righto. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.